This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's just me, James, again today, and I'm joined by Ruth Kinner, who's going to introduce herself shortly. And we're discussing the concept of mutual aid and trying to sort of cast that in a broader perspective. We talk a lot about mutual aid, but we we don't talk often about what it is and what it means and, and how it's been happening for a very long time. So, Ruth, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us anything yes. you think is relevant? Yeah, thank you, James. So my name is Ruth Kinner and I work at Loughborough University in the UK. Um, Loughborough's halfway between Nottingham and Leicester in the East Midlands. <laughs> and uh, I'm a political theorist and historian of ideas and I specialise in anarchist political thought. And one of the people I've spent probably most time looking at is is Peter Kropotkin. And uh, I've written about Kropotkin's um, life and work uh, I'm also the editor of, of the journal Anarchist Studies, and I'm a member at Loughborough University of the Anarchism Research Group. Oh, lovely. Yeah, that's a very, very uh, appropriate CV for this. Um, so can we start off by explaining, because I think people hear mutual aid sort of thrown about a lot, and they know that it's people helping people. But what what would you define it as? What would be a useful definition for people to work off? So... Um, mutual aid is about uh, people helping people, but I think Kropotkin's argument, or the you know the the way that anarch- that anarchists tend to think about mutual aid, is that it's a a, a way of describing uh, a relationship uh, that can be encouraged or discouraged according to the ways in which we organise our our social relationships. So mutual aid is a kind of a, a response that we all have uh, to people when it's based on empathy, I guess. Uh, but it's something that we can um, dampen, I suppose, if we divorce ourselves from uh, from other people in in our everyday lives, and and particularly if we um, tend to think that people's well-being is the concern of others uh, rather than something which is a, a collective concern of, of of all of us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's really excellent because it. 
it's very easy, especially if you're living under under sort of capitalism as it exists today, to divorce yourself from your empathy or I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but to to help other people. Like we see that all the time. And I think one area where we've seen that increasingly, certainly in the two countries that we're sitting in, is with this like oh, just bizarre. I don't want to like pathologize it, but this just deeply uh, untasteful lack of empathy for refugees and people seeking asylum. And so I wanted to sort of start with the example of the lifeboats in the UK, and because I think they're great, they pop up. In, in Kropotkin, they've been around for a very long time. And they were, at least when I was living in the UK, a very cherished institution that, that people supported. And can you explain a little bit about how they operate within the within that sort of mutual aid lens? Yeah, so um, the Lifeboat Association was, was prompted by, it's called an appeal to the British nation. It was published mm-hmm. in 1825 by this guy called William Hillary. Um, and what Hillary wanted to do was to support... Uh, the foundation of a kind of national institution that was going to help the victims of shipwrecks. And he couched this project actually as quite a sort of in nationalistic terms, I suppose, or in patriotic terms, as sort of part of uh, the duty that that British people would have as one of the great seafaring nations. Um, But what it did was that it it established the skeleton, if you like, or it it produced the sort of the foundation for the Lifeboat Association, which is what we know now, which is basically a voluntary organization run by volunteers, funded by the public uh, with a a remit to to help anybody who is in distress at sea. And I guess, although it was sort of um, the original idea of the Lifeboat Association came from this sort of rather patriotic uh, seafaring tradition, um, Hillary's idea was that, that, that once you set up these uh, organisations locally uh, on the coast, then actually they could be replicated. So he did have a sort of internationalist perspective. He thought that these these things okay. would be yeah. would mushroom, uh, you know, across the globe, and that we would have lifeboat associations everywhere. I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly <laughs> the lifeboat association uh, is still alive and well. Uh, in the UK, and and it does exactly what he wanted it to do. He it it, it um, looks after people in distress at sea without fear or favour, and at, it's an example of mutual aid, I guess, because the people who do this um, as volunteers are always putting themselves at at risk of um, peril or or drowning, if you like, in order to to try and preserve the lives of others. Yeah, it, and it's a very at least from my memory, an institution that I've never really heard of anyone having negative opinions about lifeboats until relatively recently. Like there was always a lifeboat shaped thing that you could put money in, like a donation box and, and people just put money in it. And no one was like, oh, I don't like the lifeboats. Like, um, But recently, I suppose they've come under fire from Britain first um, for, I, th- I think they would phrase it as like encouraging people to take the risk of of traveling on small boats to the United Kingdom to claim asylum. Uh, and can you characterize, I, I don't want you to characterize that attack because it, it's, it's relatively easy to characterize and it's, it's, you know, it, it doesn't need much explaining. It's stupid, but uh, the response to that, like, cause I think it has been quite, it, it's easy for people in America to see Britain as like a parochial little island full of turfs. But um, I think actually, most people were still like most people were pretty i guess offended by the thought that we'd let, allow people to drown rather than coming to our country right to claim asylum is that a fair statement yeah i think so i mean i, I think it was astonishing actually um 
or I think it astonished people that that the Lifeboat Association would be politicised in the way that that was mm-hmm. that was attempted by the right. Um, the yeah. whole idea of 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 <laughs> of of picking and choosing who one would rescue at sea is is simply preposterous. And as you say, I yeah. mean, you know, the Lifeboat Association is is um, widely supported. I mean, you tend to see um, offices of the Lifeboat Association at seasides. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, you know, the environment is yeah. the, the holiday environment. It's the beach environment. Um, it's part of being together uh, in a place which is enjoyed by people together, um, but which also has its risks. And I mean, the first time I think I, you know, I came across the Lifeboat Association was, um, was actually through an appeal that was uh, made through a, a very popular and well-known BBC television program for children, which was called Blue Peter. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, they funded a boat uh, by asking kids to send in milk bottle tops, uh, which could be <laughs> sort of melted yeah. down and turned into aluminium or whatever it was. And then, you know, this is how they funded a lifeboat. I mean, so this, this you know, lifeboats are deeply rooted, I think. I mean, the support for lifeboats are deeply rooted in in people's psyche in this country. And um, and as I say, I think it was uh, uh, it was interesting, I guess, that that these these calls from the right, that the Lifeboat Association was somehow doing wrong in looking after migrant boats. I mean, the small boats, really vulnerable dinghies that were being sailed across the channel. Um, I, I just think the the um, it gained absolutely no traction uh, yeah. because it, it simply didn't speak to people's public perception or, 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 or deeply held perceptions, if you like, of the role of this association. Yeah, and there's been a really significant campaign to dehumanise uh, migrants in the UK, like even perhaps to a degree greater than we've seen in, in much of the US, although there's like complete bipartisan consensus that we should criminalize people coming here in, in the United States too. And like I spent, people will have heard that I spent like the last week driving along the border, seeing little children uh, like forced to, to be held in the desert with no shade and no water. Like it's, it's also very brutal here, but I think it says something that that's an institution that looks like that we, that was a line that wasn't, crossable i guess by the right and this demonization of migrants so we having established that this is a very cherished and important institution can we talk about how mutual aid is something that because i think it it can seem understandably to people who have been educated in the sort of neoliberal consensus that certainly um it's it's very common in schools and universities in, in both of our countries how this has in fact been like part of human history for as long as, as people have been living in societies and how it's a natural human response to, to want to do this. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think this takes us back to, to Kropotkin's um, mm-hmm. uh, theorization, if you like, of mutual yeah. aid. So, I mean, talking about sort of, you know, our neoliberal culture, I mean, Kropotkin's writing at a time where you have a similar kind of um individualism being stoked um, and it's being stoked particularly through uh, a notion of, of, of social Darwinism. So the mm-hmm. idea that uh, uh, fitness is linked to or that the survival is linked to, to individual fitness and that uh, competition is the is the basic rule of life and that mm-hmm. therefore not only um, individuals but states as well uh, should be you know, pitting themselves against each other in order to to gain advantage and to to secure their own well-being, and Kropotkin mm-hmm. wanted to sort of challenge this argument, and so the way he did it was to say, 
two things. One, that that biological fitness is not linked to competition. It's actually linked to cooperation. So uh, individuals in any species cannot survive unless they have uh, support from, from, from others in their species. I mean, it's simply, it's, you know, that's, that's how biology works. Yeah. So whatever advantage that individuals might, might, you know, um, acquire, um, actually their well-being depends on the cooperation or the, 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 the collective practices that they have with others. So he recognized that there was interspecies competition, but he said basically within species, uh, survival is based on cooperation. And from that, he then said, you know, um, one of the things that we can learn from this, from this sort of re or from this sort of uh, review of, of social Darwinism, is is to uh, to think about how we can encourage uh, cooperation as a moral value. Um, and he said, you know, the way then we that, because that's a good thing. Surely it's 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 uh, you know if we're biologically attuned to cooperate then why don't we make this a principle of our of our lives and he said that the way that we should do this is by um, uh, configuring our social arrangements or our environments if you like in ways that enabled us to to see that we were um, we were affected by the same sorts of problems that we had affinities with each other that there was a basic relationship that we had with each other not only with family members and friends but with strangers too uh, and that once we could understand that then actually we could sort of organize our social lives in in ways that were supportive of others when they were in positions of need or when they were in situations of need yeah so how would one go about doing that because it can seem I, look, where I live, um, thousands of people live on the street, right? And I can watch people every day walk past people who just need a little bit of help and not give it to them. And it can be very disheartening. And so how do we begin to organize in a way that yeah, recognizes our sort of mutual dependence? So, I mean, part of the argument, I think, is that um, people will fill the gaps when they see that others mm -hmm. are in need and that's exactly what the lifeboat association does and that's exactly yeah. what happened during the pandemic for example so yeah. uh, you know not surprisingly uh, one of the things that that happened in the the first weeks of the pandemic was the mushrooming of groups that called themselves mutual aid societies yeah. mutual aid associations and they were networked i mean somebody set up a website so that you know people could see exactly where these groups were they were networked in the uk i think there were some relationships that were even transatlantic so part of the argument is that you don't have to plan this and in fact mutual aid is, is an unplanned, is best thought of as, as an unplanned response. But I guess the other thing is, um, or the question that, that that mutual aid begs is that, you know, if people get together in times you know, to, to fill the gaps, if you like, mm -hmm. to, to provide support for people who are in need, then how do they sustain those organisations mm -hmm. over periods of time uh, without suffering, burnout and, and all the rest of it? And I think that really then depends on um, you know, s sort of establishing, I guess, I mean, you know, that, that's, again, why we should take um, some heart, I think, from the Lifeboat Association. It's yeah. been going a long time. It yeah. is possible to do these things, but it's difficult. Uh, and it does require that you learn how to cooperate with people who you might not otherwise work with, you might not otherwise think you have anything uh, in common with, but where you find that common ground in order to, to undertake practical activities uh, in collaboration with each other. Yeah, I think that's very um, prescient. I'm always like, in 2018, I don't know if, if you were familiar with this, but in, in the southern border of the United States, we had a large group of migrants coming here from Central America who became like a, 
a sort of talking point in the midterms um, through no fault of their own, right? And they were held at the U.S. border and then tear gassed from the, uh, from the mm-hmm. Tommy Hilfiger Gistown store in, in San Diego. Um, and I was really impressed with, like, I was there trying to help with my friends and and, and sort of trying to do anarchist things. But also there, there were people who were older ladies from churches and people from mm-hmm. mosques and people from synagogues and, and very, very much willing to work together and, you know, like, you know, we'd go to Costco together and spend thousands and thousands on water and, and nappies for babies and such. But like, I think getting past that initial sort of, I'm not a person who works with people who go to church to like, well, this person wants to help and so do I, was what allowed yeah. that to happen. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you perhaps think of other examples that people... I th- I'm interested in things like the lifeboats, which people might not see through the lens of mutual aid uh, because they're such established institutions that they, there's an assumption. I think a lot of people probably think that there's some kind of state involvement with the lifeboats, right? Mm. And the same with lots of um, sort of the uh, the societies that exist to prevent cruelty to animals and children and that kind of thing, right? Those, those aren't state funded either in the UK. Um, can you think of other examples of mutual aid that people might have sort of not realized are entirely driven by society and not the state? Well, I suppose the, I mean, the best uh, or one of the best examples mm. recently in the US context is the establishment of the Common Ground Collective after um, Hurricane Katrina. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so the aid that first went into to the, the people who were stricken by Katrina was not provided by uh, the state. In fact, you know, that came a lot later. Yes. Um, but it was provided by people who, you know, by by groups of people who um, who thought that they you know, they could um, offer medical support or uh, set up systems of uh, you know, or help set up systems of, of of basic supply and rescue. Um, and, and, and that's exactly what happened. And, and the Common Ground Collective was established as a result of it. Uh, I mean, you find this sort of thing. I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's fairly usual in in times of, you know, sudden emergency and crisis that actually the people who who do the hands on work yeah. of actually taking people off off you know the the, the house the, the roofs of, of of flooded houses and all the rest mm. of it these are local people typically yeah. uh then they're, they're not uh the agencies who who often you know take a lot of time to get there i mean the other examples i think in the american context uh, again which are uh, often rooted around um church groups but certainly a lot of um Black people's organisations, which, you know, who couldn't, you know, where they couldn't access uh, support services, yes, uh, yeah. set up mutual aid societies, because that was the, if you like, the only alternative that they would have in order to provide, um, you know, sort of uh, clubs for their kids and um, breakfast clubs and uh, any kind of welfare at all. Uh, that that was the that was the root of it. The other example, I mean, Kropotkin looks at. I mean, these are nineteenth century nineteenth century mm -hmm. example, uh, which is sort of something that's later absorbed by the state. Uh, are the, um, uh, the 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 insurance uh, arrangements that were that were made by uh, miners yeah. uh, to, to to look after uh, those who were injured down the mines and their families in the event of their death. Uh, so, you know, they were setting up their own um, systems of contribution to ensure that those families would be provided for uh, if, the, if the worst came to the worst. And, it, you know, eventually this gets taken up by the state and it's sold back to you as national insurance. Uh, but, yeah. but these systems are, you know, they're established essentially by local people um, for their own benefits. Yeah. Perhaps we ought to talk about that because there's a lot of these uh, spontaneous societal things, especially in the UK, that are, that are co-opted by the state and then sold back to us and then gradually stripped away of, of the, the, the very essence of what they're supposed to be, right? The National Health Service being another example. Um, can you talk about the danger of that kind of state, maybe danger is the wrong word, but there, there can be a state capture of mutual aid efforts, which, which can sometimes one might argue always like strip them of the essence of what they are. Is that fair to say? Well, it certainly changes. The, it, well, it, I mean, so, so state welfare changes the relationships that, that people have uh, yeah. to those institutions. And, and uh, so in one sense, it's, it alleviates the burden of, of, of running those institutions. But in the, mm -hmm. on the other hand, it it does two things. I think one is that it's, uh, it tends to encourage the idea that um, looking after each other is somebody else's responsibility. Yes. So actually, it, it diminishes or it disincentivizes the sort of the um, that that uh, stimulus to to help each other directly. So mutual mm -hmm. aid is a kind of direct action, if you like. Yes. Uh, whereas you know, once we give these these processes. Is over to the state, then actually we start to, to see people in different in, in different ways. So we mm -hmm. do start to, to get the language of scrounging uh, or of you know idleness, uh, deserving, undeserving, poor. All of those things 
come from the idea that we're paying into an institution and not necessarily um, being guaranteed that we're getting value for money. So we, we start to see the institution slightly differently. And I think the other thing is that um, uh, the, I mean, the worry, I guess, of, of, of that sort of co-optation is that it's, it conceals the other things that the, that the state does. So welfare is the last thing, if you like, that, that states assume as a responsibility. Um, and it, and it uh, provides a gloss, if you like, on the, the law and order uh, function that the yes. state serves, uh, and and somehow sort of makes the state look a bit friendlier mm -hmm. uh, than perhaps we should think it is. And I mean, this, you know, when the uh, I suppose that I mean the term that was used in the in the British context in the in the in the immediate post-war period was not the, the welfare state; it was the warfare state, because the idea was that the introduction of welfare. Um, which starts really in, in after the after the Second World War, yeah. concealed uh, the violence that the state was was otherwise perpetuating elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's very. It's something we should consider very strongly when we're looking at these things, right? I think it also strips the like the person to person aspect of mutual aid from mutual aid, like the uh, like certainly the most. Uh, common sort of mutual aid responses I've been part of uh, uh, to health crises and then to and along the border. And part of what makes that very meaningful is people saying like, you know, this is a, this is a line between two states, but it's not a line between two people or two communities, yep. right? And you are welcome because I am of this community and I want you to come here, which you do not get when, uh, you know, there's a man in green combat pants throwing uh, MREs from the back of a pickup truck. Like that doesn't, that's right. And, and but equally, I suppose, that, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at, that, you know, once you have a uh, once you have sta state welfare, you have concepts of, of access through citizenship. And that yes. reinforces the idea that there's a there's a right of access and then there's a um, uh, there's an exclusion. Uh, that yeah. necessarily follows from that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the, the relationship becomes much more transactional um, rather than um, which is the way that the mutual aid is, is couched in in the anarchist uh, lexicon, it, you know, it's 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 driven by by altruism, um, and 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 giving without um, without the expectation of reward. Yes, yeah, I think that's very important. It it, it doesn't imply a power or an expectation of sort of reciprocity. It, it's and it yeah. it um, I forget exactly where I read this. I'm terrible at these things, but like. It, I, I guess it, you don't do it in a selfish sense, but it benefits you as as well as the person you are giving to, like, in because those people are part of your community. Is that fair? And like, you shouldn't be complete if people are suffering, like, right next to you. Yeah. So I suppose there's a sort of there's a there's an argument to say that um, I mean that that comes from the from the notion of 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 um, recasting what it is to to be an individual so you know mm -hmm. your 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 personal enrichment actually relies on the relationships that you can cultivate with other people so yes. it, you know the 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 quality of those relationships is actually something that of course benefits you but i think the i mean um, one of the things Kropotkin tells his story yeah. about um uh, a child drowning in a river yeah and he imagines three people standing on the riverbank one of them sort of religious believer um the second one is he calls an ordinary bourgeois 
a yeah. utilitarian. And the third one he doesn't describe at all. And he says, you know, what do the, what happens when they see this child in the river? And he says, well, the religious person is wondering, you know, um, I should go and save the, the child because I'll, I'll reap my reward in heaven. Uh, and the utilitarian is thinking, you know, if I ch if I save this child, then I'm going to feel really good about myself, and so therefore I should do it. Yeah. And while they're while they're sort of going through that process of reasoning, the third person has just jumped in and, and saved the child, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that's mutual aid. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think that's very good. Yeah, it comes from yeah, it, it does. Yeah, it doesn't need to be like overly theorized, I suppose. Yeah, and it really yeah. doesn't. Like I've never. I think the, the construction of mutual aid is important because it allows us to join the dots across the world and across time um, and, and to see the relationship with the state. But it doesn't need, you don't need to have read Kropotkin to, to like, like, I know a big, it, it sprung up here a lot in the pandemic too, right? Like free shops and um, certainly for older people or people who are immunocompromised. I remember breaking thousands of loaves of bread uh, from the a pizza shop down the street wasn't able to open so they would bring me flour and i would make bread and we would take it to people and uh things like that were very spontaneous and didn't particularly need like theorizing in terms of kropotkin but sadly they sort of we lost a lot of that with the uh you know with the reduction in in, in the severity of the pandemic i guess and i think it's important to remember that that was a natural response and one that we should cultivate yeah yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, I mean, there were all sorts of things that were going on here. I mean, there were people who were sewing up scrubs for health workers, yeah. delivering lunches to health workers, uh, you know, as well as just, you know, the the checking on the neighbours, making sure that people were OK. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it took you know multiple different forms. And, yeah, I mean, it, it is difficult because, you know, once real life, as it were, sort of returned yeah. and 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 the and the lockdowns were um relaxed you know people have all kinds of other demands on their time and mm -hmm. uh and it and and again we sort of then get used to to thinking that you know somebody else is going to pick up the pieces now yeah um, yeah i do think that that's part of that lockdown nostalgia which is, which is bizarrely already occurring uh like, like three years down the line where people look back and think oh well it wasn't that bad and, and like, obviously thousands of people died that, that we shouldn't overlook that but Part of what people are looking back on is that sense of community, which I think so many of us lack. The, the alienation yeah. is very real for a lot of us. And so those mutual aid groups or WhatsApp groups and things gave people a real sense of belonging. I think that's the same. A lot of people felt that way in 2020. For Obviously, there, were, there was an uprising in the United States, which gave people a sense of purpose, which maybe they, they're mm. not feeling anymore. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If people are interested in, I guess it's learning and there's doing, and they, they can be distinct or they can be done at uh-huh. the same time, and we can learn by doing. And um, where would people start if they want to start their reading? Are there texts that you'd recommend that you know are not the size of a breeze block that people might find approachable? <laughs> um, well, you can get. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm. I mean, Kropotkin's book Mutual Aid is mm. is quite long. I mean, it's yeah. the last two chapters really that. Are the, the ones to read and that's freely yeah. available online yeah. um it's i mean it's a very 19th century kind of argument i mean <laughs> the other um i mean the other one that i really like is cindy milstein's um anarchism and its aspirations and that's short okay. it's very accessible and she has this discussion of mutual aid where she she links it to what she calls the ethical compass um and i think that's uh that speaks really nicely to the to the uh you know, the principles and the sentiments, if you like, of, of mutual aid, that it is this kind of thick relationship that people cultivate, but not necessarily a, um, not necessarily with a view to, to, to living in, in sort of permanently in, in, uh, in community with each other, but actually to, to uh, change the dynamics of the, of the kind of cities we live in and uh, the, the detachments that, that we, we not only have, but also sometimes kind of value uh, we don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to live in each other's pockets, but actually, that doesn't mean to say that we can't practice mutual aid with each other. Yeah, I think that'd be that'd be a great um, great place for people to start. Um, if they want to read a tiny bio of Kropotkin, Dog Section Press has an excellent uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I, I'm a big fan of their great anarchist book. I think it's very approachable for. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. Like to they're also it. they're also available online. Yes, they are. And, yeah, yeah. And they're illustrated. Yeah, it's, they're very beautifully illustrated. Um, it, yeah, it's been a good one for me to assign to students and have them approach anarchism from a non-prejudice uh, perspective, I suppose, which is yeah. which can be hard. Like, 
I always remember coming to the US for the first time when I was 21. And like, I don't think I presented in a way that was particularly affable to, to um, the Transport Security Administration. But uh, I, what are you doing here? I'm a PhD student. What are you studying? Political violence and the anarchist unions. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was immediately sent to the little room that you go to. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had the, some more questions to answer. But I think it's it's really important to present anarchism, I think through the lens of, because I think so often it's viewed through the lens of like a predilection for chaos and violence, which yeah. is the opposite of what you're doing when you're, you know, you're giving someone a blanket or something. Like it's, yeah. Um, and so I think if people listening will at least be familiar with the concept of anarchism and mutual aid and not see it in that prejudicial way. But I think if we can present it to other people, you know, you're doing anarchism. Everyone was doing it at the start of the pandemic when they were sewing masks, like you say, or homebrewing yeah. hand sanitizer. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really important actually to to the to the argument that 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 um, mutual aid is 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 for everyone. So yeah. you know, you're not anarchists are not trying to change people's heads or get them to think in particular ways when they talk mm -hmm. about mutual aid. Uh, what yeah. they're doing is is tapping into propensity that exists within all of us and what anarchists are saying is that if you you know if you push uh organizations in particular directions then actually you've got a better way or a better means of uh, a better sort of environment within which you can sustain those uh those practices but, but yeah. mutual aid itself is is not about being an anarchist it's it's about being a human being yeah 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 i wonder so if people want to sort of build ways of taking care of each other without the state where they are, they, maybe they can see a problem, right, that hasn't been addressed by the state, like one of those holes that you spoke about, or a problem that the state is addressing uh, like inadequately or in an undesirable way. How would they go about, like, do you have advice for people looking to start? It can be, a, especially if you're not on social media, which I know we've had people mm -hmm. email about, like, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, and how do I organize mutual aid? So do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are, I mean, there, there are normally sort of in, in any, I mean, in, certainly where I live, which is a small market town. I mean, there is a yeah. community center. There are, I mean, mm -hmm. there are churches too, but I mean, there is a, a sort of a local civic center, if you like, which has all kinds of uh, adverts for, for local groups and activities. There's a, I mean, we're a town of sanctuary. So uh, mm -hmm. we're one of the places that migrants are, are sent to in order to, to, to register Mm -hmm. um and the the people who are involved in the town of sanctuary they meet them greet them try and give them uh information that's useful to them they run mm -hmm. uh english language classes they try and get the kids into swimming pools i mean there're all sorts of thing activities that they're doing so yeah. i think it's a matter of sort of seeing what's there yeah uh and and then sort of try i mean often i think people don't realize the skills they have uh so for example yeah, yeah. you know if they speak more than one language uh, it's often really helpful uh, yeah. to to people who are arriving in a in a foreign land or a land that they don't they're not they're, they're not uh, speakers of the native language, you know, to help translate, uh, to, to share information, just to point people in the direction where they can get help from from other agencies. So I don't think I mean it seems to me that you know mutual aid is not necessarily trying to sort of say um, you're not going to enable people to access support services that are provided i mean even if they're paltry uh services provided by the state what you're trying to do is to to meet people's needs 
Yes. Uh, and there are existing groups and associations which, are, which will enable you to do that. I mean, you could go, if you live at the seaside, you could go down to your local uh, lifeboat association and see <laughs> if they need a volunteer to run the office. You know, uh, yeah. there are, there, there, these are the sorts of things, things that keep these institutions running. Um, that's the kind of thing that you can do. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh very good suggestion for people and it just we don't we don't need to yet yeah, be like turn our noses up at support for the state where what little is available we should avail ourselves and other people who need it and all. empower other people to get to yeah yeah absolutely um and and certainly we can't we can't act as if the state doesn't exist at a time when it does no. and it's powerful and it can hurt vulnerable people yeah i think that's is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up on the topic of mutual aid I think we've covered. Um, yeah, we. I think we've we've sort of covered it. I mean, I. I just. I guess it's a. You know, mutual aid is a is the the important thing for me is that mutual aid is a. It's an easy thing, and it's and it and yeah. it can build. Uh, and and that's the the, and it and it can be sustained. That's the joy of it. Yes. And I think that's the the brilliant thing about the the example of the lifeboat association. Yeah. You know, we can set up all all kinds of things and run them. Um, Mm -hmm. we don't need to be told to do it we don't need to be told how to do it yeah i remember one of the things that always gives me like a little spark of joy for such a, a, a venerable british institution with royal in its name is that they celebrate <laughs> they celebrate kropotkin's birthday apparently and, oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah exactly like, they'll post on all their social media like pictures of kropotkin and like a little birthday cake and uh like these celebrations which uh yeah i think people should you know take a little moment of joy to celebrate these things that we've already achieved and and i guess try and yeah. do better is there is there anywhere people um can find you on the internet i don't know if you have social media or website i'm not on social media but i i'm no. i mean easily um yeah you can find me at the university at loughborough university mm. it's um l-o-u-g-h b-o-r-o-g-h <laughs> yeah um, it's one some and... of my colleagues have struggled with loughborough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not easy yeah. um Yes, yeah, so that's the easiest place to find me and my, my contact information is there and if anyone wants to write to me, then I'm happy to write back. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.